From North Carolina to Nevada, Iowa to Pennsylvania, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the Heritage Foundation has published its annual Index of Economic Freedom, and the United States is falling further behind. Joel Griffith of Heritage is here with details. Congress has passed a resolution designed to prevent the Biden administration from implementing woke ESG investing. A presidential veto looms. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Billy Beer was all the rage during the Carter administration as the former president's brother hawked the beverage and the White House made it possible for everyone to brew their own. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine recalls. And Americans are voting with their feet as the population migration from blue states to red states continues. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Each year, the Heritage Foundation produces an Index of Economic Freedom, which tracks economic freedom in nations around the world. The latest study shows the United States continues to lose ground to other countries. Joel Griffith is a research fellow on financial regulation with the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. He is here to talk about the new report. Joel, welcome to American Radio Journal. Joel, the Index of Economic Freedom, a publication the Heritage Foundation puts out every year. Tell us a little bit about it. What is it? What is it looking to measure? Each year, the Heritage Foundation publishes our Index of Economic Freedom. And what we look at are we look at 12 essential building blocks of a free economy. And those 12 essential building blocks are property rights, the judicial effectiveness, government integrity, tax burden, government spending, fiscal health business freedom, labor freedom, monetary freedom, trade freedom, investment freedom, and financial freedom. And we look at each uh, country, almost every country we cover, we look at those 12 core components and assign each a value, and ranging from zero to 100. And we're trying to determine how free a country is from all the way at the bottom, which would be repressed, think about Cuba and North Korea, all the way to the most free of the countries, which actually there's only four countries that are considered mostly free. And sadly, the United States is not in that category. We're in the mostly free category. We're a number 25 in the world. And what we see over time is that the more free an economy is, you see that that correlates very closely with per capita income. So this is a very good metric. When the country becomes more free, you'll almost always see an increase in the standard of living of the middle class. For those countries that are considered to be more free, Joel, what sort of factors go into that that put them in that category, especially since there are only four? The four countries that are considered free now are Singapore, Switzerland, Ireland, and Taiwan. And with those countries, those four you see that not only do they have a very high respect for private property rights, as thankfully does the the United States, although those countries are right up to the United States, you see that in those countries you also have high levels of government integrity. But very importantly, you see that their, their level of government spending and the way in which their central banks are operating, you see that they're operating in a far more prudent manner than the United 
states. So although in our country, we of course, we do have overall respect for private property rights, we have seen our fiscal situation deteriorate severely over the last three years under the guise of combating COVID. But we've actually addressed that in a far less prudent manner than some other countries, dozens of countries actually, that are now more economically free than we are. In terms of those countries that are at the bottom, you mentioned a few. Tell us what the bottom five countries are and what are the characteristics, Joel, of those nations' economies that put them at the bottom of the world's list? Now, there's a few countries that aren't even rated. We just don't have the data on that. We're talking about Afghanistan and Somalia. But at the very bottom of the list, we have North Korea, Zimbabwe, the Sudan, Burma, Congo, Zambia, the Central African Republic, all of those countries are near the very bottom. We consider them repressed. And in those countries, there's very little rule of law. Um, These are authoritarian regimes. Private property rights are not sacrosanct. If you try to run a private business, small or large, you are in danger of your property being expropriated. And when you don't have private property rights, so that means that a company whether it's a domestic company or foreign investor, you're going to be very reluctant to invest resources because it takes often decades to recoup an investment, you know, especially if you're talking about mining minerals or, or extracting oil or natural gas. You'll make an investment. You won't recoup that investment for 20 or 30 years down the road. And so because those countries don't have respect for private property rights, because it's so corrupt, there's really very little rule of law It makes little sense for anybody to invest in those countries. And so it's no surprise that not only are they repressed uh, on this Economic Freedom Index, these are amongst the poorest of the poor countries in the world where a majority of some of these countries live in abject poverty. You mentioned the United States is in the mostly free category. What number do we fall in? Who else is in that general category with us? We are now number 25. We have been declining for several years. In fact, this is the lowest rating that the United States has gotten since we started tracking this in 1995. So in our general camp of mostly free, the countries that are closest to us in terms of the ratings would be Chile, Austria, Uruguay, Cyprus, Latvia, South Korea. We're all in the general range of countries. But I think it's important to note, if you look at countries now that are rated higher than us, a lot of the countries that are higher than our number 25 rating are countries that used to be socialist. Uh, Countries like Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, all of those countries used to be more uh, socialist types of countries. But we've seen over the last few decades, they've actually opened up their economies in terms of um, trade and in diminishing regulations and also getting their fiscal house in order. So to think that we have fallen so far that we are now ranked below the formerly socialist Scandinavian countries, that should be a real wake-up call to us. But for us to have tumbled down the ranking from a free country to a mostly free, that represents a big step backwards for us. And this is linked in large part to the fact that our fiscal situation has deteriorated dramatically. Our total national debt right now, the federal debt, is over $30 trillion. That, that is actually a number that is larger than our total economic output in a year. And if you're talking about the total debt that we have accumulated already, just on paper, not even included the unfunded liabilities, we're talking about $300,000 plus per family of four 
in federal deficit. And we're really starting to see that pinch now. You know, over the past two years, we saw our Federal Reserve print trillions of dollars to buy up government bonds to fund all the deficit spending. And a lot of economists on the left were saying, oh, don't worry about it. We can do this without risking inflation. Well, guess what? We're all experiencing that inflation now. Our typical family now, a disposable income, actually dropped by the steepest amount last year since the Great Depression. So we are really in a world of hurt in the United States. And our drop in the rankings all the way down to number 25 is largely due to the fact that we have taken on copious amounts of debt. We have been talking about the 2023 Index of Economic Freedom with Joel Griffith. Joel is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He researches and studies financial regulations at the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Joel, tell us a little bit about Heritage. We've talked a lot about this 2023 Index of Economic Freedom. Where can folks go if they want to read more about it? If you go to heritage.org, this index is available online. So Heritage itself is a think tank. And by that, I mean that we have hundreds of experts in, in a variety of policy areas, and we are trying to help this country really establish a civil society where freedom and opportunity flourish. And that's on all levels. Of course, economics is a big part of that, but we also focus on helping states achieve education freedom. Joel Griffith of the Heritage Foundation. Joel, thank you for being with us. Hey, thank you for having me today. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth joins us once again to talk about all things taking place under the dome in Washington, D.C. Scott, good to have you here. Well, it's great to be back, Sloman. Thank you. Something called ESG has been occupying time among both the House and the Senate. want to explain to our listeners what ESG is and then what action was taken this past week. ESG is acronym for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investing. And this is basically a set standards for so-called socially conscious investors that they use to screen investments. And so when the federal government steps in, and starts using ESG related to investment portfolios, I think it's got a lot of folks very concerned. And then there's this pressure on private investors as well to look at ESG. So Biden had a rule, a federal rule on ESG investments. And in the House of Representatives this week, they used a process known as the Congressional Review Act, where you can have expedited consideration to overrule a federal rule. And that's exactly what the House did. And they actually had a Democrat vote with them as well. And so that bill passed our House Republican majority, and it went over to the United States Senate. And the Senate, despite having Democratic majority, went ahead and passed the resolution of disapproval with 48 Republicans voting yes and two Democrats, Joe Manchin and John Tester, both who coincidentally are from red states that are up for re-election in 2024, those guys helped accommodate passage in the Senate. So what that means next is that President Joe Biden plans to veto his first bill as president of the United States. And John Tester, of course, uh, as you mentioned, up for re-election. He's going to stand for re-election, right? You know, his his plan is to run for re-election there in Montana. I think there's still some questions on exactly what his friend down in West Virginia, Joe Manchin, is going to do, but I think Manchin has ruled out running for governor. So those are two of the big opportunities that Republicans have to flip races. I think the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, 
is also quite interested in Ohio and the ability to defeat Sherrod Brown, who's who's a Democrat from really what's turned into being a, a pretty red state over the last couple of cycles. It also is the season for conservatives to gather and a couple of major gatherings taking place this past week, one of which is your organization, the Club for Growth. You folks gather every year, and uh, that's a pretty important gathering, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think it's an opportunity for the club's major supporters and for our friends and and the media. It's an off-the-record event, a closed event, but we still include some folks like that to participate on panels, and it includes members of Congress and the House and the Senate, Some governors also attend, and this year, club made it public that we've invited several of the potential presidential candidates for 2024 to participate. And so that was a great opportunity for everybody to get together and hear about the vision of conservatism in terms of free markets and economic growth and opportunity and liberty, and really all these things that we've been struggling under underneath the Biden administration the past couple of years. Meanwhile, in the National Harbor near Washington, D.C., the Conservative Political Action Conference, also known as CPAC, led by the American Conservative Union and Matt Schlapp, uh, they held their annual conference as well. And another uh, really exciting time for conservative activists to hear from many of our nation's leaders in the Republican Party or the conservative movement on the direction forward with a number of topics, including ESG. You referenced the National Republican Senatorial Committee, Scott. What have they been up to this week? The NRSC announced that Senator Lindsey Graham is going to be leading fundraising efforts for the Republican nominees in a few of these big battleground states to pick up opportunities like West Virginia, Ohio, and Montana. I think we've seen for the last several cycles how effective Act Blue with the with the left is in terms of low dollar funding and pumping tens of billions of dollars to candidates. And it just surprises you, right? It's like all of a sudden, somebody you've barely ever heard of has raised $80 million in a Senate cycle. And so what the NRSC is doing now is sort of jumpstarting these fundraising efforts for the eventual nominees in key battleground states and improving Republicans' ability and likelihood to flip those seats, because we know that it's quite expensive to invest in these candidates and to do direct voter contact. So I think there's a lot of folks that are excited about that. Uh, they'll be using WinRed, which is still not quite as strong as Act Blue is in terms of activating the Republican donor base. But I love the fact that Chairman Steve Daines, who is from Montana, is working with Senator Graham, who has actually a very prolific digital fundraising apparatus. And if he if he's a team player and he says, you know, whoever that nominee is going to be, to take on Joe Manchin or to take on Sherrod Brown or to take on John Tester. And I'm sure that they'll expand the effort to additional swing states. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. And Scott, tell us a bit about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. We also operate a federal political action committee. If anybody wants to learn more about the candidates that we're supporting or have supported in the past, check us out at clubforgrowth.org. You can sign up and become a member for free. Thank you, Scott. We'll talk with you next week. Thank you. During the presidency of Jimmy Carter, Americans got the right to legally brew their own beer as his administration deregulated home brewing. Eric Bame of Reason Magazine takes a sip down memory lane. 
Here's a stunning fun fact that you can use to impress your friends next time you're hanging out at a bar. When President Jimmy Carter signed a bill legalizing home brewing in 1978, there were fewer than 100 breweries operating in the United States. Two years ago, a study of the country's beer scene found that there are now nine metropolitan areas, nine cities in America that have more than 100 breweries. There are now nine cities in the United States with more breweries than the country had in 1978. And for that, we have to give at least a small bit of credit to President Jimmy Carter. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. This week, we're taking a look back at Jimmy Carter and how he sparked a craft beer explosion By just getting the government out of the way, by legalizing homebrewing, Carter really laid the groundwork for the entrepreneurs and the investors, the real heroes of America's craft brewing revolution over the last 50 years. And look, I'm not somebody who believes in really singing the praises of any president or politician for that matter, regardless of their political affiliation. I think, honestly, it really is the entrepreneurs, the investors, the private sector that generates most of the jobs and economic opportunities and and success in American history. Presidents get way too much credit for this stuff. But the news over the last few weeks that President Jimmy Carter is receiving hospice care at home and and appears to be probably in his uh, final weeks here on this mortal coil has me thinking back about exactly how much credit the 39th president deserves for the proliferation of all those those IPAs and those crispy lagers that you can find at any bar or brewery in America today. Now, correlation, of course, is not causation. It's not simply because Jimmy Carter signed this law that we've had this explosion in craft beer. But Carter undeniably played a small but important role in unleashing that flood of suds. Some people have overstated this. In 2010, for example, The Atlantic had a piece declaring that Jimmy Carter had saved craft beer by signing House Resolution 1377. That's the bill that made it legal for Americans to brew beer in their homes. But in fact, the craft beer revolution was already brewing long before Carter signed that bill. It was the product of lots of different things, partially the entrepreneurial financiers, people like Fritz Maytag, for example, of the of the Maytag appliance fortune, who helped save San Francisco's Anchor Brewing Company from bankruptcy in 1965. And by doing so, helped keep alive a tradition of small independent breweries in a world that at that time was really dominated by mass-produced beer. That's why there were only 100 or so breweries in the country. Uh, It was also, the, the craft beer revolution was also the result of some scientific breakthroughs, like the development of the Cascade Hop, which hit the market in 1972. Now that hop became the backbone for the revitalization of a once nearly extinct but now ubiquitous type of beer called India Pale Ale or IPA. You can find those all over the place these days. There's maybe even too many of them. State-level legal changes also played a big role, opening the way for beer pubs most significantly. There was a big change in Washington State in 1982 and then in California a few years later that helped create a framework, a legal framework for today's brewery-rich environment. Now, despite all of that, I think Carter's deregulation of homebrewing is still a seminal moment in this story. By scrapping what had been a Prohibition-era law that mainly served to limit competition in the brewery market, he gave Americans freedom to try out a new hobby, and some of them quickly turned that hobby into a professional gig. 
The Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, which is widely recognized as one of the first true craft breweries in the country, was launched in 1980 by Ken Grossman and Paul Camusi, just a couple of years after Carter signed that law. And the two of them got their start by making beer at home, by doing home brewing successfully and then turning it into a business. Jim Koch, who uh, founded the Sam Adams Brewery in 1984, also got his start by brewing at home. It's likely that neither of those brands would exist today, or at least would look a lot different without Carter signing that bill deregulating home brewing. Back in 2009, the president of the Brewers Association told Reason Magazine that roughly 90% of the breweries in the country were started by people who began making beer at home by learning the trade with home brewing. Now, the number of breweries in the country has expanded tremendously in just the last 15 years since that statement, so the, the figure is probably a little bit off today. Lots of new brewers today are learning the trade on the job at existing breweries and then going off and starting their own. But even so, the pipeline from home brewing to craft brewing was an essential step in that process, at least in the first few decades of the beer revolution in the United States. Now, that 1978 law that Carter signed didn't change the federal ban on making spirits at home. That's another legacy of prohibition and one that still persists to this day. So because of that, we can get a little bit of a glimpse into the alternate reality where home brewing wasn't deregulated. Today, there is indeed a growing market for craft spirits, but it lags far behind the explosive growth that we've seen for craft beer. And major brands continue to dominate the market for hard alcohol in a way that they just don't for beer anymore. Without the experimentation and the entrepreneurial possibilities that were opened up by the deregulation of home brewing, it seems reasonable to conclude that beer would have evolved along a similar trajectory. We'd probably have more than just Budweiser and Coors today because consumers demand more and better choices. But the explosive growth of alternative styles and independent breweries probably wouldn't have materialized without Carter getting things going in 1978. So ultimately, the heroes of America's craft brewing revolution are, of course, the entrepreneurs and the workers who invested their time and money to make a profit, and not President Jimmy Carter, who merely conceded that people shouldn't be imprisoned for innovating in the wrong kind of building, for brewing at home instead of in an official brewery. But Carter, nevertheless, played an important role, a vital role, in getting government out of the way clearing aside a nonsensical regulation and allowing new ideas and new uh, ways of doing things to prosper. Without him, we'd probably have a lot fewer choices in the beer market today and a, a lot less fun. So here's to you, Jimmy Carter. Cheers. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Check out more of our coverage of everything going on in Washington and around the country this week at Reason.com. And catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Blue states continue to lose population, and red states are growing rapidly, according to the latest Rich States, Poor States report. Jonathan Williams from the American Legislative Exchange Council has details on this American Radio Journal commentary. For 15 years, the thesis of Rich States, Poor States has been that economic opportunity drives Americans to vote with their feet, as we like to say. That thesis continues to ring true especially in the aftermath of COVID-19 pandemic. Migration trends based on new data from the U.S. Census Bureau show Americans favor states that have limited government and free market policies over those pursuing large government and progressive economic policies. In 2021, for instance, Texas, Florida, and North Carolina were the biggest winners in this net domestic migration across states, while California, New York, and Illinois were the biggest losers. 
The story for 2022 remains largely the same, but the numbers are getting bigger. Florida gained 318,000 plus new residents in the last year, while Texas gained over 230,000 new residents, and North Carolina gained almost 100,000 new residents. Meanwhile, California lost a whopping 343,000 residents, and New York lost nearly 300,000, while Illinois lost 141,000. Just incredible numbers of out-migration from the high-tax states. These results are hardly surprising, as they've been an ongoing trend for more than a decade, but the movement of individuals between states has picked up steam, and this is likely due to a couple of major factors. One is obviously employers are needing to give employees more flexibility where they can live, and this causes employees to be able to seek out the best economic opportunities to give the best quality of life at the lowest cost of life for them and their families. Also, President Trump signed the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act into law several years ago. One of the aspects of that law that gets less attention than it should was the cap on the so-called state and local tax deduction, or SALT. This is a subsidy to high-tax states and had the effect of keeping tax burdens lower in high-tax states because of this federal subsidy. While that subsidy now has been limited by the 2017 tax law, states are competing more equally on the basis of their own tax policies without the federal subsidy. The 2022 data show that Americans are choosing prosperity over big government policies. The top 10 states for domestic in-migration this last year have an average ALEC Rich States Poor States economic outlook ranking of 11th best with all but South Carolina and Alabama ranking inside the top 15 states for economic outlook. On the other hand, the bottom 10 states for domestic migration last year have an average rich states, poor states outlook ranking of almost 40. The 26 states that saw a net gain had an average outlook ranking of 17, while the 24 states that saw a net loss last year had an average ranking of 34. Policies absolutely matter. Another notable data point for the last year's domestic migration estimates came out of Colorado, Oregon, and Washington. These three states have seen significant growth over the past decade or more, with Colorado and Oregon both receiving a congressional seat as a result of the 2020 census. Each of these progressive bastions saw net gains due to differing reasons. For Colorado, the size of government growth is really yet to catch up with the current progressive political sentiment, due in large part to the work of state legislators and voters in the late 1980s and early 1990s to implement checks and balances on government growth. Amendments to the Colorado state constitution, such as the elimination of the progressive income tax structure in 1987 and the really heroic Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, TABOR, in 1992, have helped constrain the growth of state and local government and keep the centennial state economically competitive despite political headwinds. Washington state saw net domestic in-migration due to its lack of an income tax. And Oregon, often ideological twin of California, has grown in large part due to its proximity to California with, but with its lower cost of living and no state sales tax, which retirees especially benefit from. This trend of Americans voting with their feet continues to pick up steam, with no signs of slowing down. States can adapt to this reality and become more attractive with their policy choices, or they can double down with failed big government tax and spend policies. Ultimately, the choice is theirs in our system of competitive federalism. However, it's clear 
The states with right-size spending, lower tax burdens, and pro-free enterprise policies will continue to lead the way, driving growth for their states and hopefully keeping America's economy afloat, despite the horrible economic and policy headwinds coming from Washington, D.C. For more information, please visit richstatespoorstates.org and alec.org. For American Radio Journal, I'm Jonathan Williams. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KHII-FM and KTMN-FM in Alamogordo, New Mexico, along with KZOYAM and FM in Sioux Falls, North Dakota. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.